So Anthony just gave a, a brief introduction for me, but a few more words about me. Uh, three kids, one-year-old twins, um, six-year-old daughter, downtown Phoenix. I've been in Arizona 10 years. I've been doing this work for about 10 years. So it's given me a unique perspective. So um, I kind of have two roles. I kind of do what he says. I help in kind of shaping and forming the ministries at Redemption Church as we're trying to love those that are picked last in society, the least of these in society and the lost, but then also kind of like pioneering and starting new ministries and pastoring at the margins. So all that work for the last 10 years has given me a unique vantage point into preaching this message on loving the vulnerable. Um, so this isn't just me. I do want to read one thing and then I'm going to invite up a friend to kind of give us like a visual, tangible example of what that looks like, loving the vulnerable. But I think it's also important to remember, hey, this just isn't Josh, Josh's thing. This is Redemption Church's thing. And in fact, this is God's thing. We believe that the vision of loving the vulnerable doesn't come from me. Um, I help form that and shape that in our congregations, but it comes from the Lord. And this comes from our membership packet. And this is Article 22, and it says, The poor and the overlooked. The summary of that is God's people are called to love the last, the least, and the lost. And then one paragraph is, God's prioritization of the poor and the overlooked is a theme on display throughout the biblical story. In the Exodus, God's foundational act of salvation, he saves and enslaves people from the sins of their oppressors. In the law, he repeatedly calls his people to pay, to pay significant attention both personally and politically to what theologians have called the quartet of the vulnerable. What's that? Widows, orphans, sojourners, and the poor. In the prophets, you're going to see a theme here. This is the whole Bible. <laughs> In the prophets, he gives warning and rebuke to those who have oppressed the vulnerable or turned a blind eye to the plight of those in need. In the wisdom literature, he gives insight regarding the complicated nature of both wealth and poverty. And in the epistles, he repeatedly calls his church to care for those that are picked last in society, the least of these in society, and the lost of these in society. Where does this vision come from? It comes from God's word. Where does this vision come from to love the vulnerable? It comes from God himself. It oozes out of him into his people. So I wanted to give you a tangible example of that and invite up a friend. Would you give Kendall a welcome as he comes up? Kendall Dooley, would you thank him for being with us? <laughs> Kendall Dooley's become a good friend over the last 10 years. I forget actually when we met, but we've been doing ministry stuff in the city together. Uh, for years now, and he just started a position about a year and a half ago working for Neighborhood Ministries, and that's in Phoenix, and I thought it would be just like a great opportunity, just like, just hopefully stir your love for the vulnerable and see like the gift and the benefit it is. So, Kendall, go ahead and introduce yourself, man. Yeah, my name's Kendall. I've been good friends with Josh for a while, like he said, but get over here, man. I guess not as, as good of friends because he invites me to Flagstaff now instead of during the summer in Phoenix when I'd like to be up here. That's right. Um, That's right. But I'm thankful for the invitation. And so, yeah, I, I'm from Cedar Rapids, Iowa is where I was born. There are some black people out there in Iowa in little Couple. Cedar Rapids, a few. And I grew up going to a church that was in the, um, the low-income urban area in Cedar Rapids. And when I moved out here, I started working at a church um, that was more middle class, and I had a, a student pastor position. And I just missed being with those who you guys are calling the, the last, the least, 
Um, I, I missed being around them and what they have to offer. They're such a beautiful gift. I think even what you were sharing, um, Josh, of, of that's God's call for us to, to be there. I think he wants us to be there because it's a blessing when we're there and then when we get there. And so I missed the blessing that was there with, the, with those who are in the margins of community. And so I longed and desired to be there. And I felt this tugging in, in God's heart in me to, to go there. And so I made the decision um, to, to leave that job that was stable income, all of the things, um, to, to then raise support and to, to fundraise to, to serve the, the community at Neighborhood of Ministries, which is a majority kind of immigrant community in the margins, families, um, that a lot of them live in uh, two, three bedrooms and have 11 people living in one house. And so just living on those families and living on those kids is kind of my new MO. Talk about your, your uh, work with the youth and what you've been doing trying to build over the last year. Yeah, so we, um, we do a lot of different things. Neighborhood Ministries was kind of birthed um, from a VBS type of thing. There were these kids um, who, who came together with a different church in the valley where they would uh, meet on uh, Tuesday nights, I think, um, talking about different Bible stories. And they would invite the neighborhood kids in. And the neighborhood kids, they would come in, they would cause a ruckus, they'd break the crayons um, and everything. And the other church was like, man, like, we can't, these other kids are coming in, they're breaking our crayons. Um, like, I don't know if they can be around. And so they, they ended up doing uh, uh, the VBS a different night for the kids that were in that surrounding neighborhood who were a little bit more low income and, and poor. And so the, the founder of Neighborhood Ministries, her saying is sometimes always like, they're just crayons, like they're just crayons. And that was the birth of it, and they started doing this VBS. And so during the summer, we come together to kind of do a day camp for the kids. And so I get to, to lead over that, to lead that day camp, and the, the high schoolers who get to lead over that. And that's what this picture back here is from, was these high schools who are kind of the volunteer staff of that kids' day camp we did. And then we gather um, on Wednesday nights. Um, we, we eat together. We, we love on each other. We build community. Um, and I mean, one thing that, that I really love and being with these group of kids is I feel like when you, when you don't have much, community means so much more to you. And the friends you have mean so much more to you when you don't really have much things materially. That and also I think that you find so much laughter and joy um, and different things. So I've gotten to receive a lot of laughter and joy being with these group of kids right here. And so those Wednesday nights and summer programs is a little bit of what I do on top of trying to create a mentorship program right now. We're, we're trying to seek a grant to, to get a mentorship program, kind of like a big brothers, big sisters type thing for some of these kids. Talk about, like, put a Give us some context for these kids. Put some stories with faces who we're looking at here. You don't have to, I know you want to be careful. Yeah, so at the same my. Time, just who, who are we looking at? Yeah, so I am, um, I am getting married next weekend. Woo! Um, thank you. Pray for me for that as well. Um, and my fiance, she's from Chicago. She worked at a church before too. Um, a pretty big church, um, and so she was used to, to being in a suburb type area, and so she rides with me, and it's kind of helped me out during this summer, and we give one of these, uh, these students a, a ride home, and as we get them a ride home, she's just sharing about her, her, her mom's in prison right now, and she's sharing um, on her, her kind of outlet is poetry and rap and just kind of creativity that's in her. And, and she's talking like her mom's been in prison, right, about majority of her life. And so it's kind of nothing really new to her. 
And we drop her off home, we're driving back, and, and Aaron, my fiance, she's like, we're not in the suburbs anymore. <laughs> she was like, we're, yeah. we're in the heart of it. We're in these yeah. kids' lives. And so that's the people I get to love on and what gives me so much joy. Talk about uh, the gift that these kids have been to you and Aaron and the, the joy you've had working with them. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like I, I, I mentioned before, I think they, they've been such community to me and they've provided so much laughter and joy for, for Aaron and I. We, we always have to, it's a good thing, I think we we're telling students like, oh, you can't come over today. Like, no, you can't come over today for, to, to my place to come hang out. Um, because of that strong desire just to, to be with someone, to be with people who, who love them, who see them, who care about them, um, that they feel noticed and, and loved. And I mean, not only my point out so much of that, but like I said before, I think it, some of it, much of it blesses me. And I see Jesus, I feel like more when I'm with them and the compassion yeah. that they have for one another. That's good. You, you pulled out a word, um, see, talk to us more, because in the passage that I'm going to be talking through, he saw, had compassion, and went. You said it's so great for them to have somebody that sees them. What do yeah. you mean by that? Talk to yeah. us more about that. Yeah, I think so much of, so much I even think of this passage in, in, in Jesus' own life, he talks so much about being moved with compassion. Like, it's that compassion that moves him. And for that compassion, right, that moved him, he, he had noticed, he saw something, right, instead of walking past it. Like, seeing the need, seeing the least, right, then should spur on this compassion um, within you to serve and, and love and to, to be with them. Yeah, yeah, it's just that word compassion, I think that word see, have, a, have some type of connection. But, I mean, when I see see these kids. I mean, we have these 15 passenger vans because um, a lot of our, our youth, a lot of them ha have kind of moved out from downtown Phoenix into different areas in the city that I got to pick them up at. And it's a, it's a whole hassle getting in the van, picking up these kids. That's like the, that's the, la that's the hardest thing finding volunteers for us to pick up the kids with the vans, <laughs> right? But then seeing them, hearing their stories and putting like these stories behind these faces, you had me share, bring so much compassion. And I'm like, man, like, I'd, I'd go drive a van. I'd go out to Maryville. I'd drive yeah, a van for yeah. these kids. If you had to share one story where, like, you saw the presence of Jesus in this work and thought, man, God's given life to this. And just so you know, I did not prompt him with any of these questions. We're going on the fly. So, I know. Some of you are like, oh, that's my worst nightmare. Um, so, anything that comes to mind. Are you asking where, where I see Jesus? No, just like a story. Give us like an illustration. A story of like one of these kids or a moment where you're like, man, this is just this beautiful moment working with these kids. You just shared one with the girl in the ride. Yeah. But anything else that comes to mind as you're looking at these kids? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I, I have tons. I mean, a lot of this summer for these kids was their first, their first kind of true interaction um, with God and introduction to God. Um, but it, it's funny, they, a lot of them live a life as if Jesus would, um, without even knowing, without having the language for it. And specifically this, this, um, old named Holly, who was an intern this summer, we have different interns who will help out. And she was really kind of this, um, big sister figure to, to everyone. And I would even go to her because I'm new into this space leading these kids. So I'm going to her like, man, tell me this, tell me that. And I, I'm just driving um, with her, driving her, dropping her off somewhere. One day, and she, she tells me, like, <laughs> for the first time, she's like, I can say, like, I believe in God. 
Wow. She's like, some, this summer, all this stuff that's happening, the conversation's like, she's like, I mean, I, I believe in God. And it was kind of like that moment right there for me was like, man, like, <laughs> I, I felt a little, I was like, man, I, I just got here, right? I'm loving and pouring on. I was like, I get to see the work of people who, Neighborhood Ministries has been around for 40 years. So it's like, I got to see the people who are like watering into this person, planting the seed, removing rocks, doing all the things. And yeah, like, I yeah. get to see this fruit. I felt a little spoiled um, from that. But it's like, man, like that's, I think, the, the things of where Jesus is lining at, is where people are, are living the lives of Jesus without even knowing about it until they're giving language and like, oh, yes, I do believe in wow. this thing. Because they're already living it out. Love it. Well, if you want to uh, learn more about Kendall's ministry, if you want to hear more about it, Kendall's going to be in the back, or you can look him up at kendalldooley.com. He actually was able to grab that website. So kendalldooley.com, you can learn more about his ministry. Ask him about it in the back. He'll be back there. Would you just thank him again for being with us? Thank you guys so much. Oh, hey. I'm going to uh, pray for him, and then I'm going to get to my sermon. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we pray for Kendall, we pray for his work. God, we lift him up to you in the name of Jesus. God, we lift up uh, Neighborhood Ministries in their work. God, we lift up uh, vulnerable kids, God, who may not have a parent in the home. God, we think of this girl that he was talking about whose mother is in jail. God, we, we know you see her. God, we know that you are a God that comforts her and is with her. God, be with Kendall. God, strengthen him in this work. God, give him the strength to love his neighbor as you love him. God, in the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Thanks, brother. Love you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, so um, why, did I want you, why did I want you to hear that before I got into it? Because you're like, okay, we're in Flagstaff. There's not a ton of Latino immigrants in Flagstaff, and that's like the heart of the ministry. But I think that in every community, we know because we live in a broken world, there are vulnerable populations scattered among us. And it's just this beautiful vision that God has for his people to see them, to have compassion on them, to go to them, and to love them. And uh, Kendall's embodying that where he is, but to be candid, that's not going to be what this looks like here because it's a different context, it's a different space, but it allows you to just catch a vision and say, God, what are you stirring in me? What are you stirring in this church to move us towards the vulnerable? So just to refresh us, because we read the passage, you introduced me, we talked to Kendall, I'm gonna give you the passage one more time to kind of re-cement us in Luke 10, and then I'm gonna get into my sermon. All right, so give me grace on the words if you're following along with me. But a lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, well, what's written in the law? And how do you read it? And the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was coming down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to where he was, he saw him, but he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan 
came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and took him to the inn. He took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus turns, he looks at the lawyer and says, now, which one of these men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And he says, you go and you do likewise. Now, by a show of hands, who in this room would say that the church is called to love the vulnerable? Raise your hand if you believe, okay, good. That's what I thought, which is why I am, what I'm not going to do is pick my way, like the word is exegete, pull out all these different things from this text, because I could do that. I have literally spent years building training curriculum just on this text. But I wanna make a few observations and I wanna land in one specific thing that I think is really important. The first thing I wanna bring up is where I think the evangelical church that we're a part of has been phenomenal. I think it's been phenomenal, is that I do believe that we are a people that will see, we will have compassion, and we will go. We love to go on a trip, we love to go out, and we love to serve. We love to raise funds, and we love to give. It is our strength. We love to go to those for a moment that are foreign from us. It's a beautiful gift, and I'm, I'm truly, because this message is gonna be a bit confrontational, I will say that, but it is a true gift that we see cemented in our, in our tradition as a church. But there's another thing here that I think is our greatest weakness. And, this, and that's this, but the Samaritan. But the Samaritan. Because here's what Jesus does. Jesus goes to the margins. If you know anything about the Samaritan, a lot, I'm just going to assume a lot of you have uh, Christian faith in your background. Christian tradition, you know the Bible a little bit. So you know a little bit about the Samaritan, a marginalized people. Okay, not a people at the center of society, not a people at the center of religious life, on the margins, half-breeds, not looked highly upon, not at all. And what Jesus says is he reaches into the margins, takes someone from the margin, brings them to the center of the conversation, lifts them up and exalts them as the hero of how to love the margins. You see that? from the margins. I'm gonna grab them, I'm gonna bring them to the center, I'm going to exalt them and make them the example of how to love the margins. And the lawyer can't even say his name. I can just see Jesus as he's telling the story, looking at the lawyer, say his name. He can't even say, he's the one. <laughs> the one that shows him compassion. Why would he say that? Because the lawyer doesn't even look at the Samaritan as fully human. He can't even look at him. How could you possibly be exalting a Samaritan as the hero of this story. But this is normal for Jesus. This is what Jesus continually does. He goes to those that are foreign from us. You see this with the woman at the well, if you know the story of the woman at the well. Did Jesus have to go through Samaria? No, he certainly did not. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He doesn't need to go through Samaria. Does he say he has to go? Yes, we have to go through Samaria. I have to get to that woman at the well. I have to get to the woman who's been with so many men and the man she's with now isn't even her husband. Can you imagine a Samaritan, a marginalized woman, maybe in sex trafficking, and this is who Jesus had to go to. Someone completely vulnerable, foreign from God's community, but he doesn't keep it at that. Those who are foreign with Jesus become friends. 
What does it say of Jesus? This man eats with, who does this man eat with? Tax collectors and who? And sinners, tax collectors and sinners. They say, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. Let me paint a picture for you. This is Jesus's dinner table that he builds. These are the human beings that he builds around it. We have vulnerable women of the city. We have Samaritans. We have widows. We have orphans. We have the blind. We have tax collectors and sinners. We have the lame. We have those on the margins of society. Those in the margin. This is who Jesus builds his dinner table with. These are his friends. And then you have another community over here that's very curious about Jesus. They want to know more about Jesus. And that's the people on the, the, the center of society. This is the rich. This is the Pharisee, the Sadducee. This is the scribe. These are the people of center of cultural and religious life. The people that people would look at in society and say those people matter. And Jesus wants these people over here to come to the table. He's not saying you can't come. But what has to happen when they come is they have to be confronted immediately with their idolatry. They have to be confronted immediately with their segregation. They have to be confronted immediately with their pride because they now have to fellowship and sit at the table with the woman caught in adultery. They have to be reconciled and one with the tax collector and the sinner. And that's what Jesus calls us for. That's what he wants. He's constantly lifting up and giving life to those that everybody looks at in society and say, what do they have to offer? What do they have to give? And he doesn't just keep it at friendship. He goes to those that are foreign. Those foreigners, not just, I'm not talking about ethnic, just foreigner from God's people, marginalized in society. He makes those foreigners friends. And then from that friendship, they become family. What does he say to the thief on the cross? One thief is belittling Jesus. He's shaming Jesus. If you're the son of God, take yourself down off the cross. The other thief, what does he say? He says, Jesus, remember me. He pleads that Jesus would remember him. Sometimes the love of Jesus, I'm telling you, it gets to me. I'm sorry. Ah, yeah. What does he say to me? He doesn't just say you're going to be in paradise. He says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. They become family just like that. Jesus welcomes this thief this, I mean, think about the shame of these three, naked, exposed, ashamed on the cross. And this is who Jesus says, I want you to be my family. You're welcomed into the family of God now. And I think about the evangelical church of today. I think about where we're at now. And I think we're great at going to those that are foreign. Though. Why is it so hard for us to make those foreigners friends and to make those foreigners family, and I believe there's one primary thing, as I've sat on this and thought about it for 10 years, and as we don't look at the margins of society and say, I have need of you. I need you. Not just you need me. I need you. And where do I get that language from? I get that language from 1 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul is painting a picture of a body. And he's saying, how can we say to one part of the body, the toe, the fingernail, how can we say to one part of the body, I have no need of you? How can we say to one part of the body, I have no need of you? And then he says, especially the most vulnerable, the weakest parts of the body are worthy of the most honor in the body to be lifted up and honored the most out of all the parts of the body. And I believe, I'm going to say something that might be might be a bit harsh, but I believe we have to confront the brutal facts that we have not loved the vulnerable the way that God has called us to love the vulnerable. 
And I'm not just saying redemption. I'm just saying the church at large, the evangelical church at large. This isn't just a redemption. I just, no. And I believe what it's done is it's left the church anemic and left the church, in my, in my humble opinion here, this is, hey, my humble opinion, <laughs> left us mediocre in some ways. Because we haven't said, I need you. Not just you need me, I need you. Because what is love? I say, we haven't loved the way God calls us to. What is love? Love is, love is covenantal. And what is covenant? Covenant is a contract wrapped up in a love story. It is a binding, unbreakable contract. This is the covenant that you have between a man and a woman when they get married, that you're supposed to say, I will always be with you. I will always be for you. It will never be broken. It is written literally in the blood of Jesus. It is what makes us family for life. When you are adopted into God's family, you cannot be, what is the word? You can't be unadopted. You can't leave God's family. You're a part of God's family. But it's wrapped in this love story where fathers run to prodigal sons because they can't contain themselves because of their love, right? It is a contract wrapped up in a love story. But I believe, but I believe the church, the church has acted more like an absentee father than it has covenantal love. A husband or a father that might show up every six months, might do something nice periodically, but it's not covenantal. It doesn't say, I need you. Because the love of Jesus, a father, this is the love of Jesus, a father might show up, say there's a widow, and she has three kids, and then there's a man that says, I want to start pursuing her, and he shows up every six months, and she appreciates that, and that's a huge gift. He might bring some gifts. He might play with the kids. But then it moves and he starts to have dinner. They start to become friends. He's at the dinner table with them. Until what does that man eventually say? He doesn't say, you need me. He goes to the widow and says, I need you. Can you have me? Will you have me? Can I be a part of, the, can I be a part of this family? Can I be with you? I have need of you. I have to be with you. You know, I've been thinking on a song. This is a throwback. Are any of you familiar with Lauren Hill? Do you remember Lauren Hill? Any, any Lauren Hill fans in this room? Oh, I, right, I got someone right there. All right, so if you're not familiar with Lauryn Hill, you need to be, all right? The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, phenomenal album, all right? And it's not just because I'm old. A lot of you younger people are like, this dude's old. No, all right? It stands the test of time, all right? It's a good album. You got to listen to it. But this is, Lauryn Hill is going back and forth in a song called Remembering Zion, or Zion, I forget the exact title, but Zion. And she's uh, talking about aborting her son. She's going back and forth about whether or not to abort her son. And she has some voices that are giving her a story of what she should do. And this is, this is the lyrics of the song. She says, I knew his life deserved a chance, but every, I'm about to sing it. But everybody told me to be smart. Look at your career, they said. Lauren, baby, use your head. Instead, I chose to use my heart. And then she says, now the joy of my world lives in Zion. Her son's name is Zion. Now the joy of my world lives in Zion. Does Anthony sing for you? He should. If he doesn't, he should. All right. 
So it's this beautiful picture in this song. It's this beautiful picture of a woman saying, I'm choosing life for this child. I'm choosing life. When we think about the most vulnerable in our society, we think about those that are unborn, that they come to our minds and we see this. But oftentimes, church, oftentimes I feel like we fight for life. And then when that life is born, a lot of times we say we've done our job. But there's a lot of women that aren't like Lauren Hill. There's a lot of families that lack the resources, the education, and the background to care for children that are brought into this world. Let me give you a statistic. Give me grace on the numbers. 19,000 kids, 19,000 kids that their mothers have chosen to give them life that are in the foster care system right now because their mother and their families couldn't provide for them. And there's, it is now, give me grace again, 2.3 million practicing Christians in Arizona. 2.3 million practicing Christians in Arizona. And we can't take care of 19,000 kids. Church, what's happened to us? And I'm not saying it's the call for every single person in this room, but out of the 2.3 million, my goodness, my goodness, God has called us, God has called us to become family with the vulnerable, to look at those in need and say, I have need of you. And God had to awaken me. I was awakening to this reality. And it happened in my own personal story. My wife and I decided that we wanted to adopt. So we got engaged in the foster care system, started to bring kids into our home. And then we welcome a little girl named Solmora into our home. And she's actually already with a foster family at this point in time, six years ago. But a great foster family. Loved Jesus. They were great. But they didn't want to adopt her. So what we started to do is respite. If you know anything about the foster care system, it's pretty much babysitting for foster kids. So we're babysitting for a foster kid and a foster family. So we start to fall in love with her and we say, if there's any chance she's going to come up for adoption, we would love to adopt her. We want her to be family. But she has a rare genetic disorder. And because of this rare genetic disorder, if she gets a fever or if she gets dehydrated before she's two years old, she could have a stroke. And the rare genetic disorder is called gluteric aciduria type 1. Don't try to repeat it. It's all right. Super rare. So she's, we're watching her one weekend. She's a year old, and she gets a little dehydrated. She's a little sick. So we're wondering what's going on. My wife, who's a nurse, is taking like copious notes on everything. You know, we have to weigh her food at this particular time. So we give her back to the foster family and say, hey, she's a little off. So just like keep your eye on her. I don't know. You know, I don't know if this is okay. But if she doesn't seem like she's going to be okay, you got to rush her to the hospital. Because we've already actually had to do that with her when we were babysitting her once. We had to rush her to the hospital because she was a little sick. So you got to take her to the hospital. So the foster mom who's on top of it, she regresses, some more regresses. We rush her to the hospital. They rush her to the hospital. My wife at this point in time, I forget what led her back to Virginia, but my wife is in Virginia. She leaves. I get a phone call. I live right down the street from Phoenix Children's Hospital. I live downtown Phoenix. The foster family lived an hour away. I'm waiting in the ER. They tell me something's wrong with some more. We're rushing to the hospital. They come in the door, and I immediately know something's off. Immediately. Samora has an arm that's like pinned out here, an arm that's like clutched to her chest, and she can't move them like this. And she has this glazed look in her eyes, looking off in the distance, and we're all freaking out. We know something's going on, something's wrong. So they rush her back to the ER, they rush her to the ICU, 
we find out very quickly the worst is happening. She's having a stroke. She's literally dying right in front of us. And if you've ever been in the ICU where someone's dying right in front of you, it is a madhouse, as it should be. So me and the foster family are standing back. So say that this is like the operating table right here. We're standing back here, and you just have nurses, techs, doctors sprinting, trying to get her hooked up, trying to get her on life support, trying to get her what she needs. She's dying right in front of us, and I am weeping, and the foster family is weeping, and it is chaos. And in the midst of this chaos, a voice comes to me. And the voice doesn't speak to me. The voice rises up from inside of me, and I know exactly whose voice it is. It's the voice of God. And it's strong. It's not anxious. It's not chaotic like the room. It's strong, but it's gentle. And it says, come closer. Come closer. And I know exactly what the voice is telling me to do. I take a step closer towards the hospital bed, towards Samora. Come closer. Keep telling me, come closer. So I take another step to where eventually I'm transfixed on her face. I crawl into the bed with her. And the doctors are rushing around, they're, pl- they're hooking her up, and I'm just staring at her face just like this as she's dying in front of me having a stroke. So I'm kind of in and out, of, honestly, I'm in and out of consciousness because I'm so emotionally drained from the experience, as you could imagine. So the, the morning comes, we realize, okay, the worst has happened, she's had a stroke, but she's alive. So the foster family that was taking care of her at the time decides, you know what? you guys are best suited because you would love to adopt her. You're right down the street from the hospital. We live an hour away. You need to become her foster parents. So we sign the papers to become her foster parents in the hospital. You have to remember, at the point of the stroke, I am nothing, literally nobody in this girl's life. I'm not her biological family. I'm not part of the state who actually is her guardian, the state. I'm not a foster family. I'm nothing. All I know is one thing, is I love her. That's all that God's given me at this particular time is I love her. So we sign the papers and for two months we're in the hospital in and out with her. I take the night shift. For some reason, God gave me grace to sleep at night in the hospital with her in the same bed. My wife takes the morning shift. We don't have any kids at this point in time. And this is how it goes on for two months. And then we come out of the hospital and there's years of trying to keep her safe. We don't want her to have another stroke. We want her to grow as healthy as possible from the stroke to where now fast forward six years She is still, continues to be, which I'll get into in the story in just a second, just such an incredible gift to our family. She's six years old, about to start school, significant physical deficits from the stroke. Still can't walk, still can't talk, but no cognitive, praise God, no, at this particular time, you could pray, keep praying, you know, but no cognitive deficits at this particular time. So she's going in at six years old as a first grader, which, which is great. And she's just been such a great gift to my wife and I and our family. But come back with me. So you come back in the story. So we're about, we adopt her. She, a year she has a stroke. Two years we adopt her. Let's fast forward to year four-ish, year three or four. I'm at a place now where I'm about to lose my faith. I'm about to lose my faith. Because I thought God cared for the vulnerable. I thought we served a God who cared for the weak. <laughs> I thought we served a God who went after widows and orphans and welcomed them and built them up, you know? And here I am caring for my daughter in and out of the hospital. I mean, for those first few years, I felt like we were in the hospital every month for a week or two. And we lived our lives in the hospital. 
You know, and I'm watching her, you know, getting poked and everything. And I'm like, God, do you care? Are you with, are you with her? So I find myself in a leadership collective and a leadership collective is redemption wide. All our 10 congregations will come together once every two months or something like this. Once every two months, I think. And all the leaders will get together. We'll worship, we'll pray, we'll have some sort of training. But I'm worshiping in one of these leadership collect- collectives two or three years ago, I forget. But, you know, I'm, I'm up front, I'm worshiping, and that voice comes back. God's voice comes back to me. And it says, come closer. And I... And I know exactly what God's, because I, I remember God never told me, when he told me to come closer to her, I never got an explanation why. Why do you want me to come closer? So I knew exactly, he, he wants to tell me something. <laughs> so I start to pray, and I'm trying to pray in the spirit. God, what do you want to say? What do you want to say? And just like that, it comes to me again and says, when you see her, you see me. When you see her, you see me. And I lost it again, and I'm weeping. And you know, the worship leader who's leading up front's a good friend, and I thought he was going to stop playing. Like, Josh, are you okay? You, you, when the spirit—I don't know if you ever had the spirit just like fall on you, like a fresh falling of the spirit—but you can barely stand. Oh my God, the spirit just overwhelms me. I can barely stand. I'm bawling my eyes out because I know exactly what God's telling me. You know, I painted this picture when I'd be in the hospital bed with Samora. I'd paint a picture, and Jesus was always standing next to me, and he's encouraging me. And he's telling me, Josh, you have to realize, he's telling me all things that we know that are good and true. Josh, you have to realize, I love her more than you love her. Josh, you can trust me. I've proven myself to be trustworthy. Josh, I've suffered before her. I know the road of suffering. But never once, never once, did I imagine that Jesus was in the hospital bed and I was caring for him. And all of a sudden, Matthew 25 comes to me. As you do to the least of these, Jesus says, you do to me. As you do to the least of these, you do to me, Jesus says. And then God gave me a fresh image. And this image is me caring for Jesus as he's in the hospital bed, changing his bedpan. And while I'm doing it, he's teaching me about the kingdom of God. Is that not the suffering servant? Is that not the one that could not even carry his cross up the hill to be crucified? Is that not the one hung naked and exposed for the world to mock and shame? Is the one lying in the hospital bed clinging to life? And while he's clinging to life, he's teaching me about the kingdom of God. Another vision comes to mind, another memory, not a vision, another memory comes to mind. Samora is three years old. We're sitting down, we're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible. And there's a uh, part in the Jesus Storybook Bible at the crucifixion of Jesus where it says, the day the sun stopped shining, or something like that. I think that's the title of it. If you've never read the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's phenomenal. You've got to read it. So the day the sun stopped shining. And we get to this image where Jesus is being crucified, and he's hung up on the cross. And Samora starts to point to the body of Jesus, and she starts to point to herself. And, I, and I'm wondering what, she, what she's doing. And then I notice... She's pointing to Jesus' wound in his side where the spear went in. And then she's pointing to her G-tube where she has a feeding tube. She's pointing to Jesus where she, or she's pointing to Jesus, there's a, there's a wound right here on Jesus. And she points back to herself where she has her medical port. A medical port, if you don't know what that is, just for easy access of IVs. They put this like little pocket underneath your skin so they can get IVs whenever they need. That's only for people that are like getting poked all the time like she was. And at three years old, my daughter is identifying 
with the sufferings of Christ. Now you tell me, who needs who more? Do I need her or does she need me? You know, when anybody comes to me and they say, Josh, Samora is just so lucky to have you. What a blessing you are to her life. I know two things. One, you don't understand what you're talking about immediately. And then two, what's more tragic, and this is honest, if they come in the church, this is really tragic. You don't understand the kingdom of God. And I'm not just saying that. You literally don't understand the kingdom of God. Because when someone comes to me and they say, Josh, you two are so blessed to have one another because you need one another, I say, you get it. You understand the kingdom of God. You know, now I realize, fast forward, I realize now, years later, what God was trying to tell me when he said, come closer. He wasn't just saying, come closer to Samora, although he was. He was saying, come closer to me. But to get to him, I had to go to her. Now I ask you, church, we are a church built on the gospel. We are built on the good news. We are built on the suffering servant. Do you want to be with him? Do you want to see him? It's an honest question, and you can say right now, I really don't. But if you do, if you're like the Apostle Paul that says in Philippians that I may know him, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, what does Paul say? And partake in his sufferings. Partake in his sufferings. Whatever I have to do to get close to Jesus. And there's no other way around it. If you want to see Jesus, it's on the other side of suffering. And if you want to see Jesus, if you want to be near to him, he's with the vulnerable. And he's waiting for you to find him. It's like, It's like, it's like the treasure hidden in a field. Oh, God, when I look at her face, it's like, it's like the treasure hidden in a field. All the suffering, everything you might give up, everything that you say matters in your life, everything you say, is it worth it? You get the treasure. You get the treasure. It's like the man that found the treasure and he says, I would do anything, anything to buy that field and have the treasure. Here's what I want us to reflect on. This is where I end. Oh, Here's what I want us to reflect on. I want us to take a moment. I'm going to pray. They're going to come up and Anthony is going to end our time together. I just want us to reflect on what God is saying to us, quite honestly, because I don't know your life. This is where I love preaching because I don't like to give you things to do because God is the one that tells you what to do. You don't obey me, you obey Jesus. So from this message, what's he stirring? What's he saying? What's he confronting? What's he leading you to? Just take a moment of silence and reflect and hear the voice of God. We are a people that hear God's voice and we obey him. We have to be hungry for the voice of God, hungry for him to speak to us. So take a moment, you reflect, and then... uh, Anthony, you'll come up and lead us forward. Let me pray, and then we'll transition into time of reflection. God, God, I thank you for uh, this community. I thank you for 
these people, God, and I pray that you would guide us and move us forward. God, I don't know what it is that you have for this church, and I don't know what you have for these families, and I don't know what you have for these individuals. God, but I know one thing. God, is that you love the weakest and the most vulnerable. God, and I pray that you would guide us. God, help us. God, be a people hungry for your voice, hearing your voice, and living living a life that clings to want to obey the voice of God. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.